Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam and I am the Gatekeeper. Uh, it's that time of year. The holidays are among us. Whether you're a Jew or a Hindu or a Christian or uh, Islamic or any of the other number of religions in the world, I wish you a happy holiday. Fun fact about me, I am now the Booker of the Hollywood Improv, but I was a religious studies major in college, UC Santa Barbara, a renowned program for religious studies. I loved it. It was great learning about all these religions around the world and uh, it led me here to a podcast about decision makers, mostly in the world of comedy and talking to artists and all that stuff. (laughs) That's crazy how life works, right? Anywho, also you might be listening and pray to no God. You could be a Satanist for all I know. Um, And I applaud and respect whatever your belief is, as long as you don't hurt other people. That's pretty much my philosophy in life. Don't hurt other people. Why am I saying all of this? To fill space. Because I didn't prepare the type of intro that I really wanted to do for this special holiday episode. And so I just keep talking in circles and circles. And in fact, this isn't even really a special holiday episode. It just happens to be uh, released around the time of year where the malls are packed with people buying presents and Santa's granting wishes. And I think that's how mall Santas work. They grant your wishes. Never granted mine, but it's because I am Jewish and Santa hates Jews. But being Jewish, I'm excited because this year, Hanukkah falls on Christmas. Christmas Eve is the first night of Hanukkah. And well, we got eight crazy nights, as I think Adam Sandler once said. And so I present this little holiday segment before we get into a fantastic interview with Jim Florentine. Jim Florentine is an amazing stand-up comic. You've probably seen him in one of the season finales for Louie playing a great road comic. It's a very awesome episode. You're going to Love hearing about him and his road, and he's releasing a new special. He did great voices on Crank Acres, and he's got a really great story. Came up loving music, just like me. Was really into metal, and his career has blossomed to combine the things that he loves. A recurring theme on this show. But back to those eight things. This is the Jamie Flam Top 8 Tips for the Holidays. Number eight, just do you. You can't be anyone else, so stop trying. Number seven, nog. Drink it, love it, no regrets. Enjoy. I love nog. Number six, avoid those crazy malls and mall Santas by going to a website called Amazon.com. Now, how do you get to Amazon.com to do all your holiday shopping? You're going to go to Bing.com, type in Amazon.com. Now, there's going to be a list that comes down of uh, search results. Sort through those, and by the third or fourth page, you're going to find the results for Amazon.com. Click on that, and then type into the search function of that, Bing. Now, what's going to come up first is a lot of Bing Crosby holiday CDs and stuff with that Bing Crosby stuff. Definitely buy some of that, because it's great. It's definitely going to take you back to the early days of childhood and Christmas, especially if you're uh, an octogenarian. Um... On the fourth or fifth pages of results in Amazon under the search Bing, you're going to actually find some great, great uh, hats, uh, mouse pads uh, that have the Bing search engine logo on it. It's a great way to support Bing and look really cool, especially around the holidays. Number five, got your eye on smooching that special someone? Mistletoe isn't the only thing to kiss under. Hell, you can kiss under anything, include the sky. Just make sure that he or she wants to kiss you back because it'll be either embarrassing or could get into a lot of trouble. So don't force anything. Just let it happen naturally. And it's okay if you make it through the holiday season and weren't able to uh, physically connect with another human. It happens. Sometimes for two to three years in a row. <laughs> Not me. I'm always getting action. Number four. Four calling birds. 
uh, is reminiscent of that great holiday classic song about the 12 days of Christmas. Is it there 12 days of Christmas? There's one. I've never really thought about that. The fact that there's a song called the 12 days of Christmas. They're trying to bite and even one up Hanukkah. Anyway, if you're lonely, and again, no judgment if you are, use this number for calling birds thing to remind you to call your loved ones. Four of them. I suggest family, friends, acquaintances. And if you're really lonely, call Radio Shack. They're just as lonely as you are. Give them a pep talk. They need it. Sometimes cheering someone else up is the best way to cheer yourself up. Number three, Nog. This is the time of year Mm. for Nog. I think I might have said it in one of the other numbers, but that's how damn uh, appropriate to the season Nog is. Whether you love it or hate it, drink it. A lot of it. I love Nog. Number two, this podcast, Gatekeeper, you've been listening to it for a while. You know that it's chock full of so many great nuggets of wisdom and insights from top industry professionals and artists who are sometimes struggling with the same things that you are. Dare I say it's the best podcast of all time? Yes, I do dare say that because I believe in myself and I believe that all of you believe in yourselves too. So take a bunch of episodes, throw them on a CD, give them to a friend. They're going to be like, oh my God, this is great. How much did this cost? This must have put you out, what, $100, $200, $300? And uh, you can make up whatever number you want because the shows are that good. And it will be a wink between you and I that was all free. I make this all for free. No money at all. So do me a favor and give me the gift of writing a great review on iTunes. Tweet out about the podcast if you can. Any help would be awesome at this time of year. Thank you. Number one. And I think it's the elephant in the room, the Republican elephant in the room. Uh, We have a new president coming into power, and I know we're all freaking out about it. Donald Trump, what's he going to do? And I know a lot of people out there are like, ah, comics are going to have a field day with this new president. But guess what? The joke isn't worth it if people are getting hurt. Well, here's the good news and something to focus on through the holiday season is that even though Donald Trump won the election and not the popular vote, the Electoral College still hasn't voted. So there's still this chance that they can go against... They, uh, the Electoral College already voted. And Trump, Trump's going to be president. Okay, so number one. Nog! Nog! Mm. Nog! Oh, I love Nog. All right, enjoy this episode with Jim Florentine. You're going to love it. Happy holidays from Gatekeeper to you and yours. Gatekeeper. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm here with a special guest. His name is Jim Florentine. Hi, Jim. How's it going? I'm so good. How are you? Good. I like the setup up here. This Have you nice. been here? I've been up here before, but not for podcasts. Just for hanging. I think you know, probably get paid. Oh, they get paid up here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is the pain room. Yeah. Yeah. Pain, pain and pain. <laughs> right. I don't know what that means. Um, so you're saying you're in town right now promoting your special, which came out today. Comes out today. Yeah. A simple man. And according to your press release, it's your best work to date. Yeah, that's. Do you you know, that? I, I don't. I don't know because I think my next one's better. Good. I think it's just always be improving. I know. I just hate when bands do that. They mm-hmm. always say it's our best album by far. What band said that? Well, every band does. You know bands more than most. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm in, immersed in that world. But the, you know, whenever you read an article about whatever band, it could be uh, you know a regular rock band or pop. Like this is my best record so far, without a doubt. And you listen to it, like no, it's not. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I'd say it's up there. I never, you know, let the other people judge. That's true. Have the reviews started coming in? Um, my mom hated it. And that was one. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it is definitely a good thing. I don't know. This is my, what, fourth or fifth one. So we'll see. And what is the anticipation when you have a, a special coming out um, in the day of? Talk, you know, a lot of young comics that listen to this might want to know. One day I'm going to put out a special. The work that goes into it. The anticipation, the day it comes out, in this day and age, like knowing that maybe there's a, a, a window, maybe on iTunes, where you want to hit number one as quickly as you can, or yes, right now I'm at number two. Really? Yeah. Opening day. Yeah. Congrats. Well, that's usually when you get the high numbers, the opening day, right? Because everyone gets it. Maybe it's the pre-orders they throw in there, and then everyone when it comes out, like, oh, I want to get it, and they download it. So usually by like a week, it moves back. But you know, the first couple of days is when you usually do Who's your best. Uh, I and think Doug we, Benson. We gotta blow this fucker out of the water. Well, we'll see what happens. I think this podcast appearance could be the Hopefully. tipping point. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, because I've done like I've had um, so hit number two, three, and five. And this is another number two. So hopefully it hits number one. 
I love it. Well, you were just saying that you just did Bill Burr's podcast, Adam Carolla, Dom Marrera, and now the gatekeeper. So this one's going to push me over the, <laughs> the I'll look at the numbers when this airs. Yep. It either goes from two to 10 or it goes two to one. We'll see. Or two to 99, hopefully. <laughs> Not, I'll be all good. So special, your fourth or fifth special. How'd you get here? Take us through all the gatekeepers and all the things in your life and your career that have you gotten to back to Hollywood. You live in New Jersey. I live in New Jersey, yeah. But I come out here a lot. My management's out here. And, you know, so uh, I'm always out here auditioning, doing shows, doing whatever, you know, that that kind of stuff. So I, I make enough time, come out like one for like a week every six weeks, usually. And the rest of the time you're just going up in New York and... Yeah, going up in New York or being on the road doing stand-up. I usually do two weekends on the road. Mm-hmm. Each month, I do one weekend in New York City, and then one weekend I take off. And where do you start? New York? I started in New York. Well, yeah, New Jersey, you know, it's, I tried to crack New York way too early. You know, when you first get on stage, like the first six weeks, you perform in front of your friends. They all come to the open mic or the little Wednesday night comedy thing, and then you think you're the best. Sure. Like, you're amazing. You see guys on TV, like, I'm better than that guy. And then you go to New York City, and you have to bring 10 people, so then you got to lug 10 people in. And, uh, you know, and you don't do well and you realize the competition, that's the major leagues and you get your ass kicked and then you go, all right, I got to go back to the drawing board. And so then I went back on the road and worked my stuff for like three years before I came back in. How do you just get back on the road? I mean, I I knew a lot of guys like headliners at the time that were needed an opening act that I became friends with. And I would, you know, for 25 bucks and I would drive them. You know, so I was working a lot. There was a lot of like one-nighters in mm-hmm. different places and they would bring me to comedy clubs. They go, look, I got this guy that's going to MC. He could do seven minutes, you know, for the weekend and stuff. They were already working these clubs for like 10 or 12 years. Like, all right, fine, bring them. So I got a lot of work right in the beginning and worked and honed my stuff. And then you go back to New York. I go back to New York. And um, the comic strip in New York was uh, the place where I really wanted to get in. So I'd hang out there. You basically have just to hang out, show your face, you know, whatever. And they had a softball team and the team was always terrible. <laughs> they were like two and 13, two and 14. Lucian Hold, who, who ran the club, was the manager. That was his passion. He, loved, he was the pitcher on the team. He hated that they lost all the time. And me and another comic, Eric McMahon from New Jersey, would hang out there. And we both played baseball. We played softball and all that stuff. So... We're just hanging out. We go, we play. And he's like, well, why don't you come down for practice then? We weren't even past the club. We weren't even working there. And um, we practiced one time. He goes, all right, you know, you, you could be on the team. I think we'll throw you on. And then, like, the opening day, we both won, like, four for four. And we won the game against the best team. And now he's like, he couldn't believe it. He was so excited. He goes, but now we have to work at the club. So now he has to watch us to pass us to work at the club. And I remember he didn't want to. He knew we're from New Jersey. He was like, ah, these guys, you know with their Jersey jokes, you know, <laughs> you know, cause it was more like monologue jokes. That's what most of the comics in New York city were doing at the time, like mm-hmm. almost like a David Letterman set. So he watched my set. He's like, ah, he goes, uh, he goes, you got, your jokes are very sophomoric. I remember that. He goes, you have jokes that, you know, guys in a locker room will nudge each other afterwards. He goes, I don't, I don't like that particular humor. He goes, but your voice needs to be heard in the club. He goes, well, I'll start you off doing proms. He goes, 17 year old kids will love your act because they do prom shows. I heard about those prom shows. Yeah. Brutal. Like two in the morning. Yeah. Kids that don't want to be there. They're like, what are we doing at a comedy club? We want to go out drinking or get laid. And then they're at a comedy show listening to these dudes. So he said, we'll start you off there and then we'll see what happens. So that, And that's how I broke into the club from being on the team. And then like within a month, MTV was looking for new guys for the comedy show at the time. And um, I was a new face. They put me up and I got the show. Then I got a college agent. You mentioned Barry Katz before we started doing the podcast. New York Entertainment was his big company back in New York. And they had every college. They had every. So I got in with New York Entertainment like right after that from doing an MTV appearance. And then things just started happening from there. That's amazing. And is that, that's my favorite path ever is the softball team approach. I, I only because I hit a softball. I, I played little league. I played in high school and then I was playing on like local softball teams, like a Monday night. So hopefully the comics that are listening to this podcast at a young age, start playing recreational sports because yeah, seriously, because they, ha- you had to, I couldn't be a ringer. They call it. I had to work at the club to be on the team. I like so you said, we need your voice, but we also need your batting stance. Exactly. Yeah. And he goes, I'll put you on at the end. And then he said, he goes, look, and then he would give me like the last spot on Monday night at like 1130, which was like the worst spot. He says, look, I'm going to put you in that spot. Um, he goes, but don't take it personally. He goes, I put Sam Kinison and I put Andrew Dice Clay there when they work the club and then we'll see what happens. I didn't care as long as I was getting on stage. Of course. And I mean, being and coming up in New York, how, how, have you spent any 
uh, amount of time in LA, like for an extended period, like doing clubs and, um, cause people still say that New York is, is where you got to go to get your training wheels off and go. I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, LA, the, the comedy scene out here is great. I mean, my first set I ever did out here was in 1998. I was doing comedy like five years or something like that. And I got on Louis Anderson comedy showcase. He had a show on NBC and I flew out here and the night before I got a spot at the comedy. No, was it the Laugh Factory? It might have been the Laugh Factory to do my five-minute set or my seven-minute set. My manager got me up. And so on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, I had a zero <laughs> for seven straight minutes. It was my first time ever in LA. And I was like, oh my God, I was petrified. I'm like, oh my God, these, they don't know what I'm talking about. My manager's like, maybe we should switch up your set. It didn't go over. Well, I, I know. And I was freaking out. I go, no, I just got to stick with the set. I got to. And, you know, a TV taping, the crowds are right on your side. And I did well the next day, but I was it freaked me out. Yeah, that was my first set ever in Los Angeles. And right before I'm taping my first, ma you know, major TV, especially on a network, NBC. Um, and then, you know, I'd come out here, here and there. But I, I think the scene out here has changed. I thought it was very PC and they were kind of like uptight. So you have any kind of edge. They were like taking it personally if you had any kind of like anger or rage, you know, like the, a lot of the East Coast guys are kind of angry up there. And they're like, whoa, 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 why are you so angry? Come on, it's 80 and sunny. We're having fun. That's right. You know, so so I got that a lot where like oh, I wasn't going over that well. But I, I don't know if in the last maybe like seven, eight years, it's really changed where guys can be dirty, they can be edgy, and the crowds love it here. I think they're more open here now than they are in New York. Really? Yeah. What do you attribute that to? I don't know. I think uh, New York's just so. I remember if, if if Trump won the election, every comment was like, "Who, who voted for Trump?" Nobody would raise their hand because it would be like a fist fight. The right. I don't know. Just a, a, just very you know liberal there, and they come to the clubs, and it's all you know. If Are you have any raising their hands out here, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> I haven't done a set yet. Not but that I, I've seen. <laughs> I haven't done a set yet, but they would probably get their ass kicked yeah. if they did. I think it's calmed down a little, but after the election, it was just like death. Have you done any? road shows in the last two weeks? weeks um i guess a month yeah that have you know in middle america that you've, you've seen a different perspective um yeah, usually it's like 50 50 yeah like i brought it up before the election it was like boo ah, boo you know so it was like 50 right in the middle if they weren't as passionate or as angry so the lou anderson showcase but you said it went well and then did anything come of that and did you expect anything? Was that going to be your big break? Well, you, you would hope, and the MTV thing really helped because MTV was really popular back then. Um, the NBC thing, it's like, wow, you're on actually network TV. So, you know, I had good management at the time. And, um, you know, another year or two, you know, I'm like getting the little commercials here and there, little bookings, this and that. And then um, I had this idea where I was just working at night. I was making enough as a comic. I was making like 500 bucks a week. I had a shitty apartment. I was sharing it with Jim Norton and I had a girlfriend at the time. Three of us was, was splitting $850 a month. It was right outside of New York City. Mm -hmm. So we were paying like less than 300 a month. So I can make four or 500 a week and I can get by. Um, and I was just doing shows at night. So I had this thing where like when telemarketers would call, I would try to keep them on the phone as long as possible because I had nothing else going on during the day. And my buddy Don James like, you should tape this. This sounds really funny. So I just started recording the calls and I put a CD out. I made a CD. I put the calls out. It's like, ah, I'll just get my name out there. I'll sell them after shows. Who knows? And about that time is when um, Jackie Martling left the Howard Stern show and they were having unknown comics basically sit in on the show. So I mailed my CD into the show. My buddy knew uh, the producer and he goes, all right, if Howard thinks it's funny, he'll play it. The next day he's playing like three or four tracks. Go, who is this guy? This is amazing. Oh my God. We got to get this guy in here. Three months later, I'm sitting in for the whole show on the Stern show. And I go in there and he, he takes a liking to me. Now, uh, now I'm, I'm featuring in, in like funny bones and improvs around the country. And I go on that show. I remember the funny bone in Pittsburgh. I was always featuring, making 500 bucks, a hundred dollars a show. And my manager goes, Hey, Jim's going to be on the Howard Stern show on Thursday and Friday. We want a headline spot, pay him $1,200. And the, you know, the club owner's like, he's a feature. He's like, look, he can headline. You just never gave him the chance. Give him 1200. He's doing four and Howard Stern will plug it. All right, fine. Reluctantly agrees. I sold out all four shows. So that was my first, you know, but I already had the 45 minutes. So I was working for a while. So I started doing that. And then like a month later, Jimmy Kimmel and I'm Corolla had this idea for the show called Crank Anchors. We're looking for guys to do prank calls and recurring with puppets. They hear my stuff on the Howard Stern show. They track me down through my management and go, we want this guy on the show. That's just, a perfect storm. Just from me putting out like a CD. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I just said, ah, I'll just put it out. We'll see. Prank calls. Who knows? 
Yeah, and just doing, I mean, I think talk about it all the time with people is, um, you know, you had no expectations. None. Right? Just having fun doing something you loved and saying, hey, check this out. Yeah, I just figured, you know, make three, or four, sell three or four after a show, 10 bucks a piece. You know, oh, this guy's funny. I'll see him next time he comes in town. I didn't have a stand-up disc out at the time. And then, you know, all of a sudden, that a, when has there ever been a prank phone call show in the history of television? <laughs> Never. A month later, like, who is this dude? We want him on the show. And then I was pretty much the only unknown to get picked for that show. It was Sarah Silverman. Dane was on there. Tracy Morgan, Jimmy, Adam. They had the, the man show at the time. That's right. You know, Dave Attell, Dennis Leary. So I was like pretty much, who is this? Dave Chappelle. Like, who is this dude? And I played two characters on the show. And one, one of the characters I did, Special Ed, was, you know, basically took off. People went crazy <laughs> over it. Who would have thought? I think that's the one only the, the one I remember the most. Yeah, I know. And it's just, it was crazy at that time. Because <laughs> then I started headlining all these, you know, these, these DA rooms, the improvs and the funny bones. And everyone that watched the show thought I was a puppet act, that I was going to bring the, the Special Ed puppet and just yell yay the whole time. And I'd have like kids, if the, if it was under 21, if it was all ages, there'd be like parents with their kids waiting at the door. And then I'd be up there just like, no, I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll mention at the end of the show. That's it. People yelling, heckling, you know, where's the puppet? I'm like, there's no puppet. There's no puppet here. Like, oh, I thought you're going to bring out a puppet. I'm like, no. So I lost some of the crowd by that. But then I picked up new fans. So no regrets on not bringing special ed. No, what happened was there was one, we had a premiere in New York City with the Crank X. I never met the puppet. Like I just did the phone calls and then they recreated it and did it out in LA. We did them in Vegas and they would take the audio and then build sets or whatever. So the one time we had a premiere for the, um, for the show, I took a picture with the puppet and it went online because they did a whole promotional thing. So the Improvs and Funny Bones took that picture, that headshot off of there and put it out front thinking I was a puppet act. They were like, hey, we're going to sell tickets. They'd be like, I know that puppet. The Improv loves puppet acts. I know. Yeah. Well, I, and then I'm showing them like, you know, I'm opening, I'm talking about the homeless for the first three minutes. Like, what is this? <laughs> I remember some like guy, he was like 60, sitting right in the front. He's like, where's the puppet? Like five minutes in, I go, sir, how, close your eyes and I'll do the voice for you. You're a grown man. Do you really need a puppet here? I'll do the voice. Close your eyes. So what's the puppet doing now? I don't know. I I actually did get a puppet later on. They gave me one. Um. So I, you know, I have it in my house. Sits on your mantle. No, it's actually at my mom's house. She likes to keep it there. Nice. Yeah. My son likes it now. I got my son. He's six. I showed him some old crank anchor stuff. Oh, how exciting! He thinks it's funny. That's he's like, funny. "Oh, that's you're, cool, you're cool, Dad." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So crank anchors, it's taking off. You're starting to headline. What's next? Yeah, I mean, you know, I you know, I went from making you know five hundred bucks and featuring no hotel room or staying in this shitty condo to headlining, you know, and getting a good agent and just you know getting out there. And then um, I did a season of Inside the NFL on HBO because they heard me on Howard Stern and the Crank Angers thing. So I did that. I got that for a season. And then um, and then uh, you know, a couple of years later, like I always, my whole childhood was prank phone calls and listen to heavy metal. My older brothers were into that kind of music and I just, you know, I, I drive around in the car with them and they would just play that stuff. So I had no choice but to like that music. And then I was always in trouble. So I would just stay in and I'd make prank phone calls. So like two, like 2006, uh, Crank Gangs went off the air 2007. We did that for four seasons. I did stuff with Eminem. Eminem, we did calls together. We did the MTV Music Awards together. And then, um... A friend of mine um, pitches a show to VH1, a heavy metal talk show. And then in 2008, I get on a heavy metal talk show, just in, like the Tonight Show for ACDC fans. And we do that for, for seven years, 130 episodes. It's incredible. It was amazing. Yeah. And it's a, I didn't have to do research on any of the guests. I knew them all, you know what I mean? All the big guys. And, and it was great just sitting around talking to these guys. And Was this before or after your touring? And this was in the middle of it. You know, just that. And then, I, so now I got a whole other set of fans, you know, Comedy Central, Crank Angers, I get those fans. And then all of a sudden, you know, the show's canceled. And all of a sudden, like these metal dudes that wear Iron Maiden shirts are starting to come to my show. You know, then, then they, didn't, they didn't even know I did comedy. I'm doing comedy probably, you know, 15 years at that point. Like, real, I didn't even know you were kind. I never heard of you. So then you got a whole new audience. They weren't expecting a puppet. No, but then they would sit in the front row with their Iron Maiden shirts on and be like, you know, I'd start telling jokes and like, oh, dude, what, about, what about Iron Maiden? When are you going to bring up heavy metal? I go, you know, we'll talk about it in the lobby afterwards, you know. Just at the beginning and end of every show, just heavy metal, puppets, let's get to the good stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Homelessness. Some, yeah, or sometimes they'll yell out stuff for the show. The Crank Angus thing was always like, they were always yelling. It was almost like what Chappelle went through with the I'm Rick James bitch. He right. couldn't get through bits. Mine was crazy with the special ed stuff. They were just yelling catchphrases from it. 
And they're like, do it, do it. And the crowd be yelling. I'm like, look, I know when to do it. I go, I'm going to do it at the end. I go, it's my encore. It's my hit single. I go, Journey doesn't open their show with Don't Stop Believing because then everybody would leave. So I know where to put it. I'm a professional. So, so not- I'd close with it. Sure. And so then so you're doing the heavy metal show and now you're touring with Anthrax. I did that. I did. I did a whole tour with the metal bands. I did arenas, you know, in front of 17,000 people, a bunch of metal heads. And what was that like? Um, the way I, I, I said it, um, it was like emceeing a rape. <laughs> you know, I knew I was going to die, but I knew there's gonna be a lot of emotional damage I'm gonna have to deal with. All right. All right. You know, afterwards for the next 10, 15, 20 years of people screaming at you, you suck, get off the stage. Because they like 70% of the crowd knew me from the TV show I was on, so that helped. But that only helps for about two minutes. Right. And I had to do like three five-minute sets in between each band. The first set I did, the venue was like a third full. It was great. It was like I could have filmed a special. Mm-hmm. They were listening. It was fine. By the time the second band goes on, like an hour and 15 minutes later, they're getting antsy. I do my quick set. I'm off. But by the time the third band goes on, they want nothing to do with you. They're like, all right, enough, dude. Because they actually think that when you're on stage, you're taking time away from the band. You know, if the band Slayer is going to do an hour and a half set, me up there telling dick jokes for five minutes, they're like, I'm going to miss a song because he's got to tell more jokes. And is that pretty consistent for all the shows? Or did you learn some tricks to try to buy the- Yeah, you'd just be a cheerleader. Yeah. You know what I mean? Give it up for that. The, this first band, give it up for the second band. Come on, make some more noise. And then you're looking at your clock. Okay, that just that just killed 40 seconds. Did it take any of the luster off of your love for, for metal bands? No, because I knew going in. I just wanted to challenge myself. You know, I just knew. I said, I got I to gotta see if I can pull this off. It was nerve wracking and it sucked. You know, but I, you know, I'm on a tour bus, so it was kind of cool, you know, but I just knew, you know, by the third or fourth show, I pretty much knew the set I needed to do to get by. Mm-hmm. So what's after that? Um, what's uh, this that? is the first time I'm doing the straight up timeline approach. Yeah, yeah, and no I problem. I like it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I'm doing, um, that metal show and, um, Californication, um, the creator show is a huge metal fan. If you watch a show, Marilyn Manson's been on, there's always like Slayer references and all this stuff. So I'm out here where we used to uh, tape the show out here, that metal show. And my manager knows uh, the casting director for the show. And he says, hey, Jim's in town. Maybe Tom Kaepernick, I forget his last name. Tom uh, wants to, Kaepernick wants to see Jim, maybe meet him. Because he knew that Tom watched the show. So he's like, yeah. So I, I go to his office to create a show. It's the last season. We sit there. We talk like hard rock and metal for like an hour. And he goes, all right. He goes, that's great. He goes, you want to be on the show? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I go, I don't know. I'll do anything. He goes, all right. Let me see if I can write you in, write you in for the season. I'm like, all right, cool. Two weeks later. You want to play a pimp? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. He goes, all right. You're, so I got booked and I was on the set for like four days, you know, with the Coveney and, and Pam and all that stuff and, and working with that. It was amazing. And what happened was on the set of that mo- of this, of Californication, I'm hanging out with Pam Ad- Ad- Adlin. Pam Adlin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's great. She knows all the comics. She worked with Louie. You know, when Louie did a show on um, at HBO, mm-hmm. she knows Jim Norton. We're good friends. So we're hanging out. And, and then the next morning after the first, first day on the set, she goes, I talked to Louie last night because she's friends with Louie. She goes, and I was telling him how funny you are. And Louie goes, you know what? I have a great idea for him to be on my show. I got a awesome. And, I'm, and she tells me, and I'm like, oh, cool. That's great. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He was really excited. He said he thought you were so funny too and all that. Now that was, you know, two years go by. And I'm like, all right, he probably just said that, whatever. I'm like, that's cool. And then I get an offer out of the blue. And my manager's like, hey, Louie wants you on an episode and he wants to know if you want to do it, but you have to read the script first. I go, I don't care what it says. I'm going to be, I want to be on. He goes, no, you want, he wrote it for you, this script. And he wants to make sure you're okay with it and you want to do it. So I go to his office, sit there and read it. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm in. And we do the scene. It was in the last episode of uh, last season of Louie. It was the last episode where I basically were two road comics on the road and I'm opening for him. I'm, I'm not annoying asshole in the condo. It's one of my favorite episodes. Oh, you saw, so you saw it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
And the whole thing, like I, I have a prank call where I, I tell a guy, the guy's trying to sell me some toilet thing. And I tell him my, my toilet is clogged. It's clogged so much. I had to take an upper decker. An upper decker is when you shit in the top of the toilet tank. That's right. So he, that was in a prank phone call. And Louie always, whenever I'd see Louie in the city, he goes, oh my God, I heard on satellite radio, that prank call where you said you were taking an upper decker. He goes, that's the funniest <laughs> thing I ever heard. He's always said that to me over the years. I love that upper decker call, whatever. So he writes that in the episode. That's basically... You know, I guess he needed a comic and, you know, and I, I, I go, Louie, I could play this role. I've been working with that guy. I shared the condo with that fucking, that asshole. That's annoying. I go, no problem. And then I guess he put the upper decker thing. That's what, that must've been the idea. Like, oh my God, he's going to die at the end. I just got to uh, figure out a show around him. And then I got submitted for an Emmy for the role. I didn't know that. Yeah. Amazing. I didn't get nominated, but I got submitted for it. You know, but um, just, you know, from taking an upper decker on TV, <laughs> you know, that's how low TV is sunk that they're actually, you know, submitting an Emmy, if, you know, for a guy for an Emmy that's, you know, shitting on top of a toilet. And it's full circle tight. with the softball. Baseball has become this recurring theme in your career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Upper decker. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and it was great, you know, working with Louie and stuff like that. And I just knew, I said, look, this is my chance. I really got to, you know, it was a lot of lines. As a comic, you're like, oh man, he's just I, to me. It's like, oh, look at all this work, look at all these lines. So I made sure I got the script like a month before, and I knew that thing inside out. So you know, because when you start thinking about the lines when you're in a scene, you're completely out of it. Yeah. And if you don't know your lines, you know, and Louis doesn't like to do too many takes, which is great. You know, when I was on Californication, they do like 20 takes to do it from different angles. And at some point you get exhausted. These guys are professional actors. You know, you screw up here and there. But Louis likes to do two, three takes. So I said, I'm going to go in there and make sure I'm prepared. I got all these lines down. And um, it went great, man. It was awesome doing it. And how nerve wracking was that? Or was it? Or was um, just- no, it wasn't that nerve wracking because I knew Louis. Mm-hmm. So it really wasn't. It was more, more nerve wracking working with the company. You know, because I was a fan. I remember getting off a plane. I had to come out and do a table read the day before we were shooting. And I was doing a show somewhere and I couldn't get out till the day of. And I landed in LAX. I jumped in a cab, went right to the set. like, a, And I had a, like a connecting flight. I left at like five in the morning, like Ohio. I'm on like two hours sleep. And all of a sudden I walk in and they're like in two minutes, a table read starting. And I'm sitting right next to Coveney. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> This is insane. All the Showtime executives there and stuff. I'm like, hopefully I don't get fired at the table read. You made it. I made it. Yeah. God bless you. But just from heavy metal, you know, Tom from the creator of the Californication, liking the show, Pam saying I was funny on it. Louie going, I got a great idea to two years later, you know, I'm on Louie episode. And I see Judd Apatow at the comedy store. He's like, dude, that was one of the greatest scenes I ever seen. That was amazing what you did. So, you know, just that you're on his radar. So who knows? Judd actually, I, I did a little part in uh, Girls. He executive produces. So he cast me in that, you know, about a year before. But just uh, just from that, and now I'm on Judd's ra- radar. So who knows if something comes up in a movie where he's like, oh, Jim would be perfect for this. That's perfect. So get on people's radar. Be cool. That's that's. Yeah, you don't be a dick, you know what I mean? Like, you just, you know, there's always going to be dicks in the business. You try to, you know, don't steal jokes. And going back to the, the Louis scene, and it is so iconic, and I think comics especially relate to that dynamic of the road dog that, uh, that, that's killing, and then the, the guy going up with something to say, watching from the back, and, and then tanking. Yeah. Because the headline spot on the road is the, is, is the toughest spot by far because it's a check spot. They're drunk. The show starts late. You know, the feature act does 25 minutes in the middle. A lot of these guys have been doing that same 25 minutes for 10 years. They got to perfect it. No one knows them, so they don't really have to change their act. They're great. I mean, they're great comics, but they never can get to that headline spot. Mm-hmm. So they're doing the best of, best of for the last 10 years, 25 minutes. And then the headline is gone. They got to do 45 minutes to an hour. And then at 30 minutes in the, you know, the waitress dropped the checks and nobody's looking at the stage for five minutes. So how does that middle act transcend into the headliner? Is it arbitrary? It's tough because you can't, once you get stuck in that middle slot, it's tough to move up from headliner. Like I wasn't doing too many funny bones and improvs. I was doing one in Pittsburgh and a couple other ones when I was featuring. But once I got on the Stern show, I pretty much had a clean slate with the regular improvs around the country. So I started getting booked in them. But it's tough once you start in that slot. It's almost like the guy that starts in his hometown, the home club never gives him respect. Oh, he just lives down the road, so he can MC. He can't feature, or he can feature, but he can't headline. Meanwhile, the guy's headlining wherever, you know, everywhere else. He's featuring wherever else, but he's stuck in that slot. So, 
that's how, but I was lucky where I wasn't even in that world. I was doing like the B or C rooms until I, you know, until I got to the next level. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know who the fuck I was. So post Louis, you're submitted for an Emmy. And now you have your special. What happened in between there? Um, I got cast. Well, I do a lot of, um, I've been on Amy Schumer's uh, show on Comedy Central, like three out of the four seasons or how many she's done, two out of the three. Did a bunch of different sketches in there. And I, I had a little part in Trainwreck, which is good. Blockbuster movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, right now I got to, you know, the stand, stand up is my main thing. I love doing that. That's my main, you know, that's my bread and butter. I love being in a club on stage, my own boss and just creating a whole set and putting it together. What is uh, your, um, work ethic and what does that look like when, what, from the time you wake up in the morning? Um, I don't have any set work ethic. I, you know, I do a podcast too. So I do that. I do a radio show on Sirius. I do that. But as far as writing, it just, it has to come to me. I'll write it down. I'll put it, I'll put it in my voice memo. You know, I'll put it in my notes on my phone and then I'll go to the club and try to work it out. I don't sit with an open, empty notebook every day and go, all right, what am I going to write? Just ideas and then stage. Ideas and then stage. And then you record it and then- I record it all the time. I can listen back to it. You know, uh, it's weird. I have a thing where I need to be like moving to come up with jokes. Like I go to the local track at the high school by my house and I just walk around a track and I listen to the set and it gets my mind going where I can come up with some lines and I'll stop and I'll put it in and I'll, I'll think of a good line to put on after it or all oh, the shit, this doesn't work. But for me just sitting there, it just doesn't work for me. That's a recurring theme for a lot of, not only just comics, but, um, some of the greatest composers. I had a, a guest on the wrote a book called daily rituals, but walking is this, like I said, a recurring theme that, that so many great artists, of the last few centuries have done as all part of their daily routine. Yeah. It's, I don't know what, for some reason it gets your mind going, you know, exercise and all that stuff. So, but yeah, that always works for me to walk. And I'm not going to be running on a treadmill thinking that's too much, but just walking around a track or walking around the neighborhood, you know, also in the shower, the bands are, you know, compose always done. Yeah. I wrote a great song in a shower and a comic mm-hmm. does too. You'll stay in there for 20 minutes. Oh, I get this bit, but I've never been disciplined enough to sit there with a book, you know, a notebook and just start writing every day. I wish I could. Maybe it's because I was a shitty student in school, so I don't have good <laughs> study habits or, you know, homework habits. But so earlier in your career, were you able to do that? I, I, I presume that you had to write out jokes when you're first starting out and doing open mics and then doing feature sets. And then at what point do you feel comfortable enough that you can go up on a stage and just work stuff out? Um, it took a while. I would, st- I would still always go to open mics because, you know, now when you start doing the B and C rooms, you got to go in there and kill. You know, it's the first time you're seeing you, so you can't really experiment too much. So, you know, but then I would always go like an open mic on a Monday or Tuesday and try to work it out there. Or just usually, I usually do it early in my set. Like I usually would open like, with like two or three minutes that I know worked. And then I would try like a hunk of maybe two or three minutes right after that. And then I would do my regular set because I felt like... The home jokes couldn't follow the new the new st- new stuff couldn't follow the home jokes and the crowd almost sensed like God I was new that was kind of weird mm-hmm. so I'd always do it early in my set I wouldn't open with it that's too much but I would always get them on my side and then throw some stuff in and then go back to you know the regular stuff that I knew worked I mean so much of your career and I think most people's career is is that being at the right place at the right time and serendipity and all these things and there's certainly that recurring theme for you. But what, are there other, other X factors that you attribute your success to? Yeah. You know, I, I was never a guy that was jealous of other comics. I didn't want to waste my time on that. To me, if I saw a guy that I thought was better, I would just use it for motivation. I'm like, if that guy can get that, be on that stage, get past that club, be on that TV show, then I can do it. But I didn't get envious. A lot of comics will do that, you know, they're like, this guy sucks. So, you know, and they'll go to the bar and they'll get shit faced and talk a bit, you know, just bitch about other comics. So I, I started before him. How is white? Well, maybe that guy's writing, you know what I mean? Maybe he's, he's taking his career more serious than you. He's not getting drunk every night and waking up at noon or whatever it was. So I never got involved with that. I, I would, when I first worked in cracked New York city, there was a lot of guys that I thought I was better at then, but the, you know, the top guys at the time were David Tell, Louie. And Ray Romano. 
And those were the three guys. So I go, all right. I looked at them guys. I go, wow, I need, I have a lot of work to do if those are the three top guys. But there was other guys. And I'm like, all right, I can easily crack this lineup. I know I can, but I'm not going to bitch that this guy's getting five spots a week at the club and I'm only getting one at 1110 at Monday night. I'm just going to work my thing. And if I can't get the five spots at that club, I'll just go around and I'll do whatever I have to do. So then I would put a CD out like the, the, the phone calls and then I get on Howard Stern and then I'm, I don't have to deal with that. So then when I come back and I'm headlining big rooms, I could do four or five spots in a week. So uh, to me, I just never got envy. Like it'd always be like some girl got a sitcom and these male comics sit around. There's fucking bullshit. You know what I mean? Why isn't me? I'm like, cause she's a girl. They were looking for a female lead. <laughs> you know what I mean? That lives in you know New York City and she's single and that's part of the show. Like why you weren't up for that role. Yeah, you were in the running for that. Yeah. It wasn't you. You wasn't you and her and they gave it to her. You know, or, you know, the black guy, you know, he's, he's, well, you're not a black guy. You're a white male. That's why you didn't get it. They weren't looking for you. Right. So I never worried about that stuff. Um, Most guys got caught up in that and just got jealous and envious. And then you're angry and you can't write stuff. Right. And so I would also say, and going back to, you know, making your crank call CDs, um, you just keep working. I just keep working and you never know where it's going to hit. You never know what it's going to be. That's going to get you to the next level. You just have your hands in a lot of different things. And all of a sudden something's going to take you this way. Like, all right, this is my direction. I'll take that. So you just don't know. To me, I was like, I'm going to do it myself. You know, growing up and like listening to heavy metal, that was always like never got any respect or anything like that. And they just but were road dogs on the road doing their own thing and just self-promotion and stuff like that. And eventually, you know, I got it. So that was almost my mentality. I'm like, all right, if the industry doesn't want me, then I'll do it this way and I'll do it. And then eventually they're going to have no choice. That's yeah. the way I looked at it. Well, coming from a booker's perspective too, you know, there's at this point now, I mean, thousands of comedians probably living in LA and there is, there's so many people and there, every single night here, are different lineups and, and there's great people that I'm sure are complaining, like, like say, why can't I crack a lineup? And I'm looking at this person and there's just so many millions of factors that go into that. And, you know, people will rise to the top and there'll be someone that I saw two years ago that now I'm seeing them on this lineup or now they're doing this other thing. And those are the people that ultimately they will start getting those spots versus the ones that walk in and look at a lineup and, and I can see them and see that entitlement yeah, seeping through. Absolutely. You know, I always tell comics, young comics, you know, in like New York City is like, I don't know, 11 clubs that do comedy every night of the week. When you move there, you try and I go, just focus on getting in one club and then maybe getting in two and then three. Don't worry about the other eight that you're not in. Who gives a shit? As long as you're working in New York and that's what your goal is. And then eventually you'll, you know, you might be able to get them all or half them, whatever. But like the, don't worry why you're not working at the Comedy Cellar and the comic strip and stand in New York, cause, but you're working at Gotham. Who cares? Work at Gotham, work at Dangerfield, whatever the clubs are. And the same thing with LA. It's like, don't worry to get out in every club. Maybe you're not right for that club. Maybe you're right for the improv, but you're not right for the comedy store. Who cares? As long as you're getting up, people are seeing you and you're working your craft. It doesn't matter. So I never, I never, there was like three clubs in New York I was always in. I didn't give a shit about the other eight. Mm -hmm. I'm like, who cares? But what do you also, I mean, I tell people don't put all your eggs in one basket either. No, you do want to, you do want to branch out. Like the comic strip was a completely different club than the comedy cellar mm -hmm. and stand up New York was there, all the, had, all the different rooms had different vibes to them. Obviously the improv out here and then the comedy store have a different vibe and the laugh factory. So you do, but don't, you know, fret over, especially when you're up and coming that you're not in every club. Eventually you will just keep working your ass off and they're going to have no choice at some point. Can you talk a minute? And cause I don't think I've talked to anyone about the cellar on this podcast which, you know, has become so iconic and, and their past system and how that works. Like, how do you get in? You have to be recommended. Is that right? Yeah. Usually, I, you know, I got in probably, I had probably like 15 years ago. They usually had to be recommended by two people. Two, two people that were working at the comedy cellar would have to recommend you. And then you would do like a five minute set. In front of them. And that yeah. five minutes, that would determine whether you could become a regular? Yeah. Then they would say, okay, you know, um, uh, here's the avail line. I'm going to start you off slow. I'll give you maybe a spot a week or every two weeks. And then I'll just work you in the schedule, depending on how you do. And were the stakes super high for that? Yeah. 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 Because you have every, you know, that was the club where Dave Chappelle would walk in, Jerry Seinfeld. Every night, somebody else was going on stage, Damon Wayans, whoever big star was in town. And then all of a sudden, they would walk in and they'd be on and they'd stay on for an hour you know, and you wouldn't go on to like one forty-five in the morning in front of like seven people. It's not like that now. Every show is sold out pretty much every night. So 
you know, then the crowds just eventually, and you just get like, uh, it was great training because I'd have to go on after Dave Attell or Nick DiPaolo or Jim Norton or Colin Quinn. After they just did a 20 minute set, I'm like, well, this is good because if I ever do a TV taping or I'm in a, a festival somewhere and I, you know, all of a sudden I have to follow a David Tell, at least I did it on a Tuesday night in New York. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was my boot camp. Just get it out of the way. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, cr- the crowd is not looking going, oh shit, How, what's this guy going to do after David Tell? They're, they don't have that mindset. It's all in the comics mind. You know, when he gets up, the, the crowd will make their decision three, four minutes in. If you're not doing well, like, oh man, this guy's not good. Wow, you know, but it, it's all it's all in your head. That stuff. The cra- just ride that wave. I always looked at it like that. Just ride that wave, and then you're going to be in some situation, in a big situation, where you have to go on after a major star with people in the room that might decide if you're going to be on a TV show or whatever. So you better work it out on those Tuesday nights or those nights in LA. You know, in a small crowd or whatever like that. Like, how am I going to follow Jay Moore? You got to be kidding me. He's going to go up there and kill for 45 minutes. Now I'm going to do 10 minutes. Don't worry about that. That's when you want to do that. That's amazing advice. And uh, again, advice that hasn't been on this podcast, but I see that every night with the egos and, you know, putting a lineup together and like, I don't want to follow that person. And sometimes it's younger comics and it's like, you have to look at everything as that learning opportunity. Like you're going to have to follow huge acts in your career. You're going to have to, it has no, I, I, when I did Montreal comedy festival, I remember one time, um, they put me on like 13 out of 13 on the show. I'm like, all right, whatever. And I'm not going to bitch. There's nothing I could do. Tim Allen walks in the room at like the second comics on and he's going to go on to a set. All the other comics are freaking out. The third comics, I'm not going on. There's no, I'm not following him. I got my manager here. This is my big break. All right. How about the fourth? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Everyone's like, no way that guy's going to go up there and kill. I go, I'll do it. Like you'll do it. I go, absolutely. So I went on right after him and just rode his wave and killed. And I got booked on, uh, was it Conan or Carson Daly? I mm-hmm. got from that. I did two sets on Carson Daly. I got Jimmy Kimmel from, and it's just from going on and people see, I didn't care. I'm like, I'll do that. Cause I was going on at, in front of, after David, Ch- Dave Chappelle just did an hour at the comedy cellar. So I'm like, I don't care. I'll ride this wave. And the crowd, like I, when I never went up there, looking at the crowds go, Oh, who's this guy? We just saw Tim. They're so excited that they saw a celebrity or a big act. You know, like, wow, I just saw Jay Moore do 45 minutes. I'm fucking from Arkansas and holy shit, he's my favorite. And then some other, they're not going to take it on the next guy. Like, fuck, this guy sucks. They're in such a good mood. You know what I mean? So I'd have to follow Sandler at the comics, uh, the comic strip, mm-hmm. Chris Rock. You know, it's all in your head, that stuff. Yeah, it's all in your Yeah, head. you can easily get blown off the stage. Obviously, a guy kills up there. Obviously, you can. But don't go up there with that mindset. Let the crowd decide it at the end of your set. Mm-hmm. Do you address, you know, the crowd when you have to follow the biggest star in the world? Yeah, you make a joke. You're like, you know, know, something like, uh, oh, man, uh, I'm sorry that I'm next. (laughs) You know, and they're all laughing. You know what I mean? I'm like, just, I go, look, you just saw Chris Rock for $5 on a Tuesday do an hour. So please don't take it out on me. Be happy you saw that. Because if you saw my Madison Square Garden, it'd be $150. (laughs) So laugh at my stuff, too. (laughs) I love that. I think that's amazing advice. Is there any other advice that you would give young comics? I just, you know, the the main thing is don't be jealous. Don't be bitter. It's not going to work out for you. Don't waste too much time on that. Get in a good headspace. Do you meditate? No. Do anything? No, I don't meditate, but I just, you know, it's like, don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You know, you have to keep your, you know, you have to be on the radar of what's going on in comedy, but who cares? You, if you don't like some comic that just got an hour Netflix special, why are you going to go sit there and torture yourself and watch it? You're just going to be angry. You might want to watch a couple minutes of, yeah, I just don't like this guy. I don't get it. But why are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. And call all your friends, go, this guy sucks. This guy sucks. This guy's, I know. And then what are you doing? You just spent all that time doing that. You know, somebody likes that guy. You know, find your, find your audience. I always just, that's why I do my podcast and this and that. I'm like, I just want to, I play to my audience. If someone doesn't get it, I totally understand. You're not going to get everybody. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Just find the people that like you and just focus on them and build a following that way. Do you have a different approach in the last 10 years with social media? Um, Has that helped you? Well, it's free, which, you know, I remember when I first started having a website and having like video on there and audio and all this stuff. It was like, I remember paying like $600 a month to get the band space, the width or whatever, some shit. I'm like, it's ridiculous. And then all of a sudden like Facebook and MySpace comes around, it's free. I'm like, wow, this is free plugs you can do. So, um, um, you know, I use it mostly for plugs. I don't do too much stand up on it. I do an hour podcast a week. 
you know, I'm like, look, if you want, you want something funny from me, go listen to it. It's free. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, you know, try to crack too many jokes on here. I just don't want to deal with the nonsense. I'd rather you save it for the stage. Some guys work better. You know, I don't know. Look, some guy could say, look, I'm on Twitter and I get all these followers because I'm engaging with the fans and I'm doing jokes. I'm going back and forth. I don't just don't have time for that. You know, but it, it's probably going to work for someone that's younger to build a following. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, uh, I'm just like, ah, whatever. I'll put my, I'm, yeah, hey, I'm at the funny bone this week. Come see me if you're in fucking Iowa. Fucking Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> so your special comes out today. Yeah. Could be a life changer. Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, But it probably took me two years to put it together. What does that, that look like? Huh? And what does that look like? Just It's, you know, you start, you do usually do like, 10 minute hunk, hunks at a time. You work on that 10 minutes, then you, you know, you always have, if, let's say I'm doing 45 minutes. Let's say I'm doing an hour on the road. I'll do 50 minutes of old material, older material that I know works. And then I'll, I'll work into 10 minutes and then I'll work on 10 more minutes. And then when I'm bored with that 10 minutes, I put it to the side. I won't do it. I'll just work on some other 10 minute slot. Like when I do New York city, 15, 20 minute sets, I'm trying to always work on new stuff. So I don't have, if I know that 10 minutes work, I put it to the side for a little while. So it doesn't get stale. And then I bring it back in, you know, and then just slowly put the set together like that, put taglines in, listen and have other comics, watch your set. I love that. I love doing when I have a comic sitting in the back of the room go, Hey man, you might want to add to that joke. What if you take this angle, put it this way or put this tagline at the end of the joke. So off comics do that and, you know, and just build the set. I just love putting it together. The segues it's, you know, it's all the whole process of doing it is great. And then finally you shoot it and then you're done with it and then you're glad, Oh my God, good. I got that out. And then by the time it comes out, wherever it comes out, then you really can't do that material anymore. So now you almost panic. You're like, shit, what am I going to write about now? You know, I've just been doing that for two years. Now, where do I start? Now I got a, a basically a clean slate. I got I got to start from scratch, and that's scary because then you got to just you know you got to bomb a lot. You know, working on the material and just working it out, and people know you and see you like, hey, he's not. He's not I don't know, man. I like this old stuff. He's not that good anymore. I saw him a few months ago. He wasn't that good. And you know, guys like Chris Rock and Chappelle when they're working their shit out of Seinfeld, it's got to be. You know, that's really got to be tough for those guys. Like, ah, I saw Chris Rock, he's losing it. You know, meanwhile, he just, you know, he's got a notebook up there and he's just right. trying shit. So uh, Seinfeld always had a good thing. He always said when he's working on material, he puts the, the mic in the stand and he does the joke in the stand. He goes, I want to see if it really works. And if it does, then I take the mic out of the stand. I can be a little more physical and move around and you can add to the joke. He goes, but let's see if it works with the mic in the stand. Hmm. And then you could, you know, like Chris Rock, when I see him working on a set, he's just standing there. He's looking down at the, yeah, this, and he's looking down at his notebook. But then when he does a special, he's all over the place. Mm-hmm. He's animated and all that and stuff. So I always liked that theory with uh, what, what Jerry said. Where did you shoot the special? I shot it in New Jersey, a place called the George Street Playhouse, about 600 seats, two shows, one night, same outfit. You know, mix and match jokes if you want. You Usually you work off like one of the shows. The second show I thought was better than the first. So you pretty much work off that. Out of the hour, probably 50 minutes is from the mm-hmm. second show. And then 10 minutes is from the first one. You just move that in. You say the same, same outfit? Yeah, you wear the same outfit. So, you know, that night because you don't want to change shirts in case you have to, you messed up a joke right. in one of the shows. What was, what was the outfit? Just like a black t-shirt okay. and jeans. But, you know, you always wear the <laughs> same shirt, the same outfit. Because then you're like, wait a minute, that... You had a different shirt on. How does that, how does that make it sense? If you're going back and forth, if you flub a line or something doesn't work. So yeah, I did the two shows in that night and then I've uh, shot it and yeah, it's up on iTunes, Amazon, anywhere you can stream or download. And where what's all your social media stuff? It's Mr. Jim Florentine on Twitter. Instagram is just Jim Florentine and Facebook. Same thing. Well, thanks for joining me. This is awesome. Absolutely. Download Jim's special you're gonna yeah, love it's it like five bucks or seven five bucks, bucks whatever it is seven bucks yeah support his life and download all the other great things he's been doing this has been gatekeeper jim this is what i say at the end of every episode hopefully you'll be inspired work on your craft endlessly be a professional be undeniable and be cool as fuck always For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.